Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by two enterprise B2B revenue legends, Paul McIor and Mark Petruzzi. And they're also the authors of the recently released book, Selling the Cloud. Today, in this first episode of two with Mark and Paul, we'll be covering these three main areas. The real role and responsibilities of an enterprise class B2B sales professional. Second, the personality traits and behaviors that differentiate A players from the rest. And three, how to build a world-class enterprise revenue generation engine. Mark, Paul, welcome to today's episode. And please give the audience a brief background of your journey to becoming guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Well, hey, Ray, thanks. This is Paul Malcury. I'm an operating partner at Stripes. It's a private equity firm in New York City. I've been doing that for a little over a year. Prior to that, it's about 35 plus years of operating experience. Starting out early days of SAP as one of the first employees here in the United States and built that go-to-market organization through the 90s, a great experience. Then I went and did my first tour of duty in Silicon Valley to help start up a company called Ariba. Was there pretty much for about 15 years from pre-revenue through IPO, through a major reduction during dot-com, and then selling to SAP in 2012. Did some work at a company called iPipeline as their president for an insurance software company. And then most recently, four years plus as the CRO and interim CEO at Anaplan, which we took public in 2018. And you know, it was a great run operationally and now very excited to be on the side of selling money instead of software. Great. Welcome to the show, Paul. Mark? Great. Well, Ray, thank you as well. So I had a little different process here along the way, although Paul and I have been working together over, well, we'll say 20, 25 years not to really date us. But I started after business school as a strategy consultant at a firm called The Mac Group which was a Harvard-based firm that was really at the time running circles around Bain and BCG and McKinsey. But that only happened for a couple of years. And then there was a transaction, a deal, and the business kind of unraveled a little bit there. But it was a great three years or so, really learning business at the highest level. And I took that kind of strategy consulting background directly into sales and sales leadership. And I've been an operator since then. And But every role I take, a particular focus that I go on, I still function as a strategy consultant. So, and I think that's really one of the reasons why I think we're able to go into this, some of the areas of the book and really leverage some of the experiences that Paul and I have had. A couple of years or a couple of intros on roles. I was a managing director at Deloitte for about six years. I started two boutique consulting firms tied to the cloud in the earliest days. I worked at Oracle at the same time that Mark Benioff did and worked very closely with him and his team and uh, was really offered an opportunity to engage into the Salesforce.com ecosystem really early. So cloud has been an area that I've been involved in again before there's been a name. And I've presently, just to tie it back to where I am today, I'm a vice president over at Accenture with the 
N3 division, which we are a sales and marketing BPO outsourced vendor. And very excited to be here. Thank you, Ray. Well, let me see. A management consultant, an enterprise sales professionals, and yours truly a data geek. This will be a, a show that every member of our audience should really love. So let's jump into the first topic. So Paul, I really love the concept of grit and what an important attribute it is to enterprise sales professionals. Can you share any best practices regarding interviewing to really discover if a enterprise sales candidate possesses grit? You know, Ray, it's really hard. I've interviewed literally thousands of reps over the years, and it's difficult to determine. Everyone looks good in the interview. Their resume looks fantastic. They have great references. They all say they've made quota forever. But it's really what I look at is, do I find the street fighter that's going to be successful in these large, complex accounts? Someone that was a A student at a B school because they didn't have everything handed to them. They maybe were their first group that went to college in their family. You know, growing up in South Philly, that's what I felt I had. I had a street fighter mentality or grit. And I always thought that that was one of the most successful attributes that I brought to the selling profession. Look, this is a hard job. It's not nine to five. You get told no a lot. It's a very difficult environment to sell in, especially as you get into the higher enterprise levels of selling. And you need to have that. And so I always try to ask people about their upbringing within reason. You know, what kind of person were they growing up? Did they have everything handed to them? Or did they really have to make ends meet? And then also trying to explain a situation where they ran into some adversity and how they responded to it. And a lot of times you get to feel what that person is really made of underneath. Because I think at the end of the day, you're going to have these very difficult selling situations that require grit. And if you can identify that in an interview process, that really is going to help you hire better reps. Now, that's great advice. In fact, one of the techniques I use is I always ask, what's your biggest accomplishment in your life, not just your career? But then I follow that up with, what is the biggest disappointment or failure mm -hmm. in your life? Because I want to see kind of how they handle not only talking about it, but more importantly, what did they learn from it and how did they overcome it? Mark, anything to add to that? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. So I think there's a couple additional thoughts here. I mean, with grit, there's, you know, if you look at some of the research out there, there's five things that really determine grit. And it's courage, it's conscientiousness, perseverance, resilience, and passion. And I guess I'd like to go a little deeper on the passion side, because we all do that same thing. You know, I have a background similar to Paul. We were both first-generation college students in our family, and Paul grew up in Philly. I grew up about an hour north in central New Jersey. So maybe a little more grit in South Philly than central New Jersey at the time, but there was enough grit where I grew up as well to really kind of pull it together. And, you know, it comes down to that ability, as Paul said, to be able to hear no and to really still be energized and positive and move on to the next one until you hear yes. And then there's really the passion, right? I mean, Simon Sinek would start with why he came to it first, but in a lot of ways, he didn't come to it first because individuals like Paul 30 years ago was trying to figure out the why in the people he interviewed and the teams that he built. And there's nothing more powerful than that. If you can really figure out what someone wants in life and how this role is going to help or maybe not help that goal, you can really pick the right individuals and motivate them the right way. You know, I think that was a good place to start. It really talks about those personality traits and attributes that are really fundamental to being successful in enterprise sales. 
But we have a management consultant here on the podcast with us. And I wanted to move in away from personality attributes to process. And in the book, there was a section about process versus playbook. Mark, what's the difference? Yeah, so I guess the difference is the flexibility of it. A process becomes an approach. And there are a lot of people, particularly nowadays, that are in very senior roles at cloud companies, CROs, that have learned good process, but they struggle in flexibility. And I think we're going to see a lot more of a need as our economy works through COVID and starts to grow again and cloud software companies have incredible valuations even in the middle of this, but there's going to need to be a lot of help building it. And I think an example that we'll all see tonight, Mark Benioff and Salesforce will be sharing their numbers and Mark's going to be on CNBC. And you know what I would expect here is he's going to, for the first time, really show the flexibility that his executive team are having to do to make numbers now. It was easy the first quarter or two. It was a lot of status quo. There were deals that were set up that just closed even remotely. But now going forward, particularly remaining in a remote approach, there's going to be more hard work that's going to need to be done. So I think we'll learn a lot from that earnings call today. And I think when it comes down to what we tried to build with this book, which for us was always a playbook, is the flexibility, how to really go in there, you know, understand where you are, understand where you want to take a business over the next few quarters and be flexible because we all know, and frankly, there's a really great chapter on managing and leading and selling through crises. And, you know, there's some really deep dives into financial crises throughout the world, the Asian monetary crisis, some of the things that happened here after dot-com, all of those areas, uh, the, the true grit of a leader and the flexibility of a leader shows up in all of that. Mark, let me dig into this a little bit more, and I'd like to get Paul's perspective. You talked about flexibility. We spend billions and billions of dollars a year with training sales professionals on a sales methodology or a sales process. And the last thing we want is for a salesperson to say, well, I'm flexible, so I'm going to do my own thing. Paul, how do you both encourage that flexibility while still maintaining some disciplined process? You know, it's interesting. One of the things we didn't want to do is challenge any of the methodologies. And every time I ran into a new job, the first thing I did is I said, okay, what methodology are you using? Now, of course, if they didn't use anything, that was bad. And if they did use it, I said, okay, I'll use that one. Because I always felt they were all based upon the same kind of playbook, original playbook from back in the day. And and as long as you stood by that and established a process around a methodology, and made people as consistent as possible to adhere to that while allowing them flexibility. I think that is really the ultimate way of approaching it. Because like you just said, you can't have every salesperson do their own methodology. That's a disaster. And I think the problem, especially today, as Mark was saying, you have a playbook. Maybe you use that playbook at Salesforce and you go to a startup company. Now, that playbook may work very well at Salesforce, but when you go and lift and shift that Salesforce playbook, into a $10 million startup, that probably isn't going to work identically to the way it worked at Salesforce. And I see a lot of CROs making those mistakes and not being flexible to take a methodology that maybe they've learned at a prior company and adapt that methodology by being flexible to the situation that they have in front of them. So I think that's really the difference between the process and the playbook. Playbook being something that's very stringent, that you're following play by play, versus a process where 
along the way you have flexibility, but you have a guide. Kind of, it's like the GPS versus the compass. Totally understand. It's like if you have that Salesforce brand and maturation of the marketplace, you go to a startup that has more of an evangelical or missionary sell, it's going to require some flexibility because a different process is going to be required, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And Ray, uh, you know, I'll take that even a step further, what Paul's saying about methodologies. We've seen them all and you're absolutely right. You need them. You need one. But there's really no value in sticking to methodologies too closely. So one of the things, particularly with my focus more, you know, I've been in both environments. I have been the partner to the enterprise sales leader like Paul or the cloud software company over the years on the consulting side. And I've been at those companies leading large sales organizations as well. And what's been fun for me, and again, another reason for this book is really seeing how different it was, how different Paul's teams have sold 20 years ago versus how they sell today. And the biggest part of that is the entire change of the business. There was a gunslinger type approach 20 years ago where companies like Oracle and SAP and others just tried to close a deal. And there was really not a lot of thought or consideration of where it goes from there and how the relationships build and all that. Now, because of the SaaS model, the subscription model, there's a different type of selling that happens right from the beginning. And that selling happens whether it's through customer success or the general relationships every single day, because a lot of these contracts renew every year, every two years. So I think that's another part of the process. And that is why I believe, and Paul does too, that you need flexible sales reps today and people who can think outside of the box. It's kind of cliche, but people that can be the CEO of their territory, you need those kind of people to successfully grow the types of businesses we're growing today. Totally agree. There was one part of the book that really spoke to me because I'm such a big fan of the first stage of a customer acquisition pursuit after they're in a resident, that's the discovery process. But one of the biggest challenges I had in my last operating role was to get early career professionals, sales professionals, to move away from wanting to talk about product feature function to asking questions and conducting discovery to determine whether the client could actually benefit from our solution. Paul, do you have any advice on how to really conduct a great discovery process and why it's so important? Yeah, I think I said in the book that most deals are won or lost in that phase because the reality is a lot of the features and functions of the products today, they're all really pretty good, right? I mean, some might be better in some areas than others, but at the end of the day, people aren't making the decision based upon that feature functionality set. And so in the discovery phase, it allows you to really probe what is not only the customer's issue, but the individuals you're selling within the customer organization. What are their challenges? What are their issues? What are they really going to be looking at as the criteria to make this kind of selection? And it's typically never on features and functions. So gathering that data, getting that information, listening, having empathy for the customer and their situation, and being knowledgeable about the company. I'm just amazed that when people go into discovery, they ask the stupidest questions. Because these are questions that you can find on the web or through public documentation. So you want to be able to make sure you know everything about that organization, because chances are the buyer probably knows more about your organization than you as the sales rep know about your own organization. So you got to go into that discovery process incredibly prepared, whether it's your reading 10K reports, 
you're watching the CEOs on CNBC, you're doing as much research before that discovery session so that you're asking the pertinent questions, not only about the company's issues, but about the individuals within the company that are going to make that buying decision. And Ray, the interesting thing with all that too, is not only do the buyers know more about the sales reps companies, they in often cases know more about the product than the sales rep does. And I'll give you an example of that. When you're selling to a CHRO and you're selling an HCM system, there's very few sales reps at Workday or Ultimate Software or Oracle for that matter that know the product more than these, the, the product areas more than some of the users. And they know it a couple ways. They, of course, know it, like Paul said, because a lot of these products are commoditized. So it's not like you're going to switch from ultimate software to Workday and it's going to be like having to start from scratch. But there's also all this research that's done before the sales rep gets engaged in a deal using G2, Trust Radius, all these reviews of products and watching demos on YouTube. I mean, these buyers are really well prepared. They know what they want by the time they get to a demo phase or a discovery phase. So I think that's another change. 15, 20 years ago, they didn't have a lot of detail and there are still sales reps. Some of those sales reps, Paul and I both know, that go in there like they're selling 15 years ago and that just doesn't work today. So you both mentioned something, which is the product feature function that the buyer might even know more than the salesperson does. I guess I would challenge that a little bit. I think the buyer probably knows the domain, the subject matter better than the salesperson, but not necessarily the product, but who cares? Because that's not why they buy, right? They buy because you're solving either a professional pain for their company or a personal aspirational goal. And that's where empathy comes in. And I am so tired of the word empathy because people have been reaching out to me trying to sell stuff for the last six months in an empathetic tone. Oh, I'm sure COVID has been really difficult for you and it's impacted your business. But what does empathy really mean? And how does it really help an enterprise sales professional in today's environment? It probably is. And I'll take this one first, Ray, an overused word, especially now in today's environment. But I think for the most successful salespeople, they've had empathy around their customers' needs well before all this kind of change in the market has occurred. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think that there are now more successful women in enterprise sales than maybe in the early days when I started and just was not anywhere near being equal. And I think they're just more empathetic. They listen better. They care more and are more genuine about it. And like I said, the features and functions are the commodity in the sales process today or becoming more and more of. And then I think having that empathy for the customer, having the empathy for the customer needs, not just saying on your website, hey, we're customer first, we love our customers, but really acting it and living it in that selling process from the very beginning and understanding the needs of that customer and really feeling bad for the problem they're trying to solve and putting yourself in your customer's shoes, I guess is the best way to describe it. And I'll jump on that a little bit as well. So I think, Ray, the difference here is it's the use of the word and also when and how you use it. So empathy is not starting an email with, I hope you are well in this unprecedented times. That's not empathy. That's not what we're describing in the book. Empathy is exactly as Paul put it. Empathy is going in there and really getting to know the person you're selling to 
even if it's only virtually on a Zoom video, it's getting to know that person, doing research, looking at where they were in their career, looking at where maybe you may even be able to make an assumption of where they want to go from here and selling with that knowledge base, really just being sensitive to the person and who they are. And yes, the best ways to do that and understand the person is over dinner, over drinks, and we don't really have that opportunity now, but there's still ways to do it virtually. And as we all have seen now, I mean, with the eight to 10 hours a day in Zoom that uh, all of us spend just on Zoom calls alone, forget about the rest of our work, there's ways to build relationships through the virtual channels as well. You just have to look for that sensitivity and just make sure you learn about the person because that's how sales build and that's how you become a more successful sales rep. That's really an interesting take on empathy. It's about having a sincere desire to learn about the customer, to ask questions, to listen to how they respond. And in fact, in your book, Selling the Cloud, there was a concept about three-level listening. Maybe this is a good time for our audience to talk more about that concept and how it can help you be more empathetic for your buyer. Yeah, maybe I'll take a crack at it and then Mark, help me out. I think if I look at the levels in that discovery process and building empathy, you're accumulating data, right? You're getting all this information in about the company, the problem, the people, the dynamics, the politics, all the things that happen in these large, complex enterprises. And you get that data by listening, obviously. And then you need to then take the time to identify, once you gather all that data, what is really meaningful to your company and how you can solve the problem meaningful to the customer's issues that they're trying to get resolved. And then I think most importantly, how is it meaningful to the buyer, right? Because companies don't buy software. People within companies buy software. And sometimes they buy them for personal reasons, and that's the way their decision process is built. So getting that understanding of that context and then acknowledging and by taking what you've learned, assessing it, putting it in the context, and then seeing where the significance is within that selling cycle. So it really is a multi-tiered approach to gathering that data, getting the context of it, and then acknowledging and looking at the significance and then applying it to the typical scenario that you're trying to get accomplished within that particular sales cycle with that customer. Mark, anything you want to add to that regarding three-level listening? Sure, right. Sure. I think a lot of my point of view on this comes from early work I did with Charlie Green, who is the individual most connected to trust and has the trustedadvisor.com website, written a couple amazing books on it, and is a close friend as well, and became one of our titans on this book. And, you know, he really taught from the beginning how important it is to control your ego in a meeting, in a listening environment. Because most people, particularly most sales reps, when they're in a meeting, they're either speaking or they're setting up their next idea that they can't wait to find a point to interject and say more about what they know and how they think they're going to say things and it's going to close the deal. And really the three-level listening kind of process is kind of built around, one, take your ego out of it, be present in the circumstance in the meeting, focus on the person who's speaking, take those times for a pause to think about what you want to say next, not thinking about it the whole time the person's speaking and then completely lose what's out there. Paraphrasing is a great way to slow down the discussion and show you are listening and actually, frankly, force you to listen because you can't paraphrase something if you didn't just listen to it. And I love Charlie, um, really taught me this at an early point in my career. 
you know, thinking aloud. And a lot of people use that term now, but when Charlie was first using it, there really wasn't much out there. I don't know if he was the first or not, but he was early. And that's just, okay, I'm listening to you, Ray. And now when I start the process, say, okay, let me just think aloud here. And it's different than paraphrasing because you're now going to the next concept, but you're confirming it. And again, the importance of that is you do get to use your brain and think before you speak, but you're not spending all that time when you should be listening. That's good insights. Now, one of the things I wanted to think back on was something that I believe, Mark, it was you said about Salesforce is going to be announcing their earnings today. It's really going to show how flexible and creative they are in these unprecedented times, using another term we talked about. But one of the most important attributes of whether it's a first-time CEO, CFO, and that chief sales officers is the ability to forecast and to make sure that what they're predicting to exit that quarter with or that year with meets what they actually deliver. Paul, let me bring this over to you. Are there any metrics that you find to be the most predictive of strong enterprise sales performance? Yeah, there's a bunch of them that I think are important for public companies, obviously, when you look at your revenue, your retention rates, things along those lines. And obviously, forecast accuracy. I've always said frontline managers are so critical in that process so that, you know, as it bubbles up into an overall company forecast, if your underlying data and process is weak, then it's going to be very, very hard you know, to accurately predict the business. One of the things I think of a smaller company as it's growing, right, and trying to become public, some of the things that I look for and, and the measurement to me that really shows the strength of the sales organization is something I call balanced representative performance of the reps. So if 80% of the revenue is coming from 10 or 15 or 20% of your reps, that doesn't sound like very good balance. And Long-term, that is going to be an issue, maybe good short-term, but you know, as you grow the company, it's going to really be stressed if you don't have a large number of reps contributing. So other predictions I would look at is if you're at 70% of quota and higher, then they particularly may not be as productive as you'd like them, but you're probably not going to turn them over. So if you have very high turnover in your reps, very low balance performance metrics, chances are you're not going to hit your high level revenue numbers. So there's some of the things I look at. And if you have a very good balance in your performance, that means you're doing a good job in analyzing your quotas, your territories, you're spreading out the wealth, if you will, your compensation structure is good, your enablement function is broad-based, and that really is a great foundation to be able to grow. Because I think as early stage companies, it's easy. Then once you get to a stage where you need to accelerate it and grow to become the next Salesforce or Workday or whatever, you really need to build those foundational elements in and making sure that not just a handful of folks are successful. Paul, can we dive into that? And for you or Mark, the latest research we've done, and by the way, this was pre-2020, was less than 60% of account executives in the B2B technology world hit quota in 2019. And predictions are it's going to be maybe 50 to 54% in 2020. How does that align with your balanced approach? It's not balanced. It's not good. And that's a problem. And I think that's why you see high turnover in our business and attrition rates are just not good. Sales productivity, obviously negatively impacted from that. So I think you've got to get that number into the 70s and to really have a sustainable, very successful highly productive sales organization. So yeah, that is definitely a challenge for our business and our profession, for sure. 
And Ray, it's interesting that those numbers kind of line up because individuals like Paul have always run closer to that 70% by design on purpose. There are companies, I mean, I'll give an example just from the outside, even though I spent three years inside, like Oracle that I'm sure, I don't know the data per se, but I'm sure their numbers average lower than that 70% and their turnover is much higher than a typical Paul-led team or some of the other titans that are involved. So I think that's the difference. And I think there's a lot of value that is gained over running close to that 70%. Also touch back on your point around technology and metrics. So we are fortunate to have as one of our titans, we were just talking about Salesforce, but Tony Fernicola, who's the president of salesforce.com and works directly to Mark Benioff. And Tony wrote the chapter on technology for us. And there's just so much you can do now around metrics by putting in place the right technology. And there's two steps of what you can do with that. There's the steps of just having good metrics for smart guys like Paul and others in the role to be able to execute on those metrics. And then there's the incredible power of artificial intelligence, AI, and what that can do and what kind of insight can be thrown at the CRO's desk every single day. So Tony goes into that, I think, in a really productive way in our book. And we'll see how well Tony did and what he does with the earnings report later on today with Salesforce. You know, Mark, you brought up the chapter that Tony wrote. And one of the things I noticed, and I want to end the first half of this episode with storytelling. One of the things I loved about selling the cloud was how you had thought leaders tell their story or tell a specific event that made their point. Was that your way of modeling why the art of storytelling is so important to enterprise sales success? Yeah, it really was. And it's funny. It's not just enterprise software where I believe storytelling is so powerful. I think it's powerful in so many directions in life and any place where communication is so powerful. And communication is the most powerful tool I think we as salespeople bring to the equation. So I've had some friends over the years and I've made some new friends that are uh, producers and directors in TV and film. And I go into some of this in the book. And these individuals have taught me lots of different things about business, believe it or not, because of how they do it. But what's most powerful in these relationships is these directors are the best storytellers I've ever seen in my life. And not in their movies that they've written, really how they interact and explain things to you. So that skill just translates over. And it's taught me how much, you know, again, consultants are well known for going out there and sharing facts and figures and 80 PowerPoints in front of a client or a prospect. And I'd rather go in there with two or three good stories that illustrate two or three slides. And it's taken me further than those 80 PowerPoint days early in my career. Paul, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the best reps are the best storytellers by far. And customers want to hear a story. They want to hear what other people are doing, how they're doing it you know, how you accomplish something at one of their competitors. It just brings everything to life. And I think bringing in these titans that probably more stories to tell than <laughs> anyone in our industry, it probably could be four or five more books without question, just on Keith and Jim and, and Mark and some of these folks that are highlighted in the book. I mean, it's just a great group of folks that have been doing this for a long time and have a lot of stories and experiences to share. And I think if you're good at sharing those stories and you do it in a certain way, customers respond well to it. 
Well, this has been an enlightening first part of our episode. So we're going to wrap up right now. And in the second half of our time together, we're going to talk about the concepts such as the power of no, learning to walk away, how to build trust and respect, and an interest of storytelling, the importance of customer success, with I think can be highlighted in the B2B software industry by yesterday's announcement that Gainsight, the leading customer success platform, was just sold for over a billion dollars to Vista Equity. Paul, Mark, thanks for being on this first half of the episode and look forward to hosting you tomorrow for the second half. Bye-bye now. Thanks, Thank Ray. you, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.